0: Good news this week for fully vaccinated people as the CDC updated their guidance saying that these people no longer need to wear their masks indoors or physically distance, regardless of crowd size. Only a few instances remain where you might need to wear the mask but the reason for this announcement comes as the vaccines have been shown to work in the real world, protect against variants and vaccinated people are less likely to transmit the disease. For more on the latest CDC guidance we'll speak to Marisa Fernandez. Healthcare reporter at Axios.
1: So, the CDC basically has initiated what public health officials and scientists have been saying, which is that there's a growing amount of evidence that says that vaccinated people, one, don't have to worry about wearing masks because they are less likely to spread the virus if they ever contract it. So, if they're asymptomatic. That means They are not able to transmit the virus to people who are in more vulnerable states. So, you know, compromised people, even children. And then also it stands up to the variants. So those are like the main questions that the CDC says that they were working on to try and figure out before they would let people have a little more relaxed guidance.
0: Now, there were a few caveats in certain settings. They say that you should still be wearing a mask. What what were those?
1: So, the caveats were that if travel is something that you are very excited about doing uh, without a mask, you're going to have to wait a little uh, while longer. So, any train stations, airports, and then any public transportation, airplanes, those uh, mask requirements are still in place. And then that also accounts for people who are in healthcare settings, nursing homes, correctional facilities, homeless shelters basically just like mass populations of people that have been known to be super spreader populations before. And then also one thing that I think is really important to note is that the CDC's guidance is not necessarily something that's going to be super effective in our daily lives, right? Because states and local governments usually enable mask mandates. So if you're in a state that has lifted their mask mandate a few weeks ago or has been starting to lift restrictions, This doesn't really apply to you because that's something that you've already been used to. CDC is trying to kind of catch up on their guidance to make sure that people have the right information and the scientific data to follow and kind of make their own personal assessment and their own risk assessment. But most people are going to be looking for their local and state governments when it comes to mask guidance and public health.
0: That's going to cause a little bit of confusion, I think, because Uh, Yeah, As you mentioned, a lot of states have already eased those restrictions. A lot of states haven't, and businesses still require them in certain cases. So, you know, you might get a few people saying, hey, well, CDC said I don't need to wear it anymore. You know, the business rules still say you do. So there might be some confusion there, uh, a few fights breaking out about that stuff. So we'll see how that happens. But I'm sure the states are going to kind of catch up to the new guidance on that pretty soon. A lot of this, uh, people have been saying this, just a response to, the administration, and the CDC kind of lagging on giving this guidance. Like uh, They should have been on this a little bit sooner.
1: So there's been some criticism in the past couple weeks about that. But this is something that the CDC has been known for for several administrations, right? This is not something that is just about the Biden administration playing catch up with some lack of trust that happened during the Trump administration you know this is something that they've been conservative on a lot of issues and in their mind this makes sense to bring out this guidance now because they feel confident within the past couple weeks they've had three studies two American studies and one study from Israel that really shows that vaccinated people are able to be protected but also not harm others who are unvaccinated
0: Marisa Fernandez, healthcare reporter at Axios, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. This week, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine has also been approved for adolescents ages 12 to 15. This is just another step in getting the full American population vaccinated. And as the pool of eligible recipients starts to skew younger, many parents may have questions about vaccinating their kids. The dosage is the same as adults, and was shown to be 100% effective against symptomatic COVID. For more on what to know, we'll speak to Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today.
2: Yes, it is. They found that kids respond well to this dose and didn't have such terrible side effects that they needed a, a lower side, a lower dose. So the doses are the same, which means that they can start giving them pretty much right away once the CDC signs off.
0: The side effects. Everybody's always concerned about that. Uh, right. You know what's going to happen. How did the clinical trials show what happens with these adolescents?
2: So 12 to 15-year-olds respond pretty much the same as 16 to 25-year-olds. They get headaches, they get pain at the injection site, they get achy, tired, but they recover within a day or two.
0: Pretty much just like everybody else, which is good. How were the clinical trials, how was the studies done when it came to this age group? You know, What did we see? Because what what I was reading is that it was 100% effective against symptomatic disease, which is amazing.
2: So this study was smaller. The the um, adult study was 30,000 people. This was 2,200 people. Kids half got the active vaccine, half got placebo. There were 16 cases of COVID among those 2,200. All 16 of them had gotten the placebo. Nobody who got the vaccine actually got sick.
0: That's yeah. That's really good news. As I mentioned at the beginning, this has to do with the Pfizer vaccine specifically. What have we heard about uh, Moderna and Johnson and Johnson possibly? being administered to younger age groups
2: so studies are underway uh, for all the other vaccines in younger age groups but they'll still be a little bit a little while pfizer started its study first and because its vaccine is given three weeks apart as opposed to four with moderna it can study things a little bit faster than they can
0: one of the questions that has been popping up when you know it comes to getting kids back to school and all that stuff you know is that uh, you know younger people younger children kids all that the virus doesn't affect them the same way it does as adults. Largely, they're spared a lot of the most serious side effects. So the big question kind of begs, if they're not affected the same way, why should they be getting vaccinated?
2: So the risk-benefit ratio is is different. You know, if you're 85 years old and, and have heart disease, you know, your risk of dying from COVID is very high, and you certainly want to be vaccinated. If you're a healthy 16-year-old, 15-year-old, it's a different calculus. And what they wanted to be sure of was that this vaccine was safe enough that it was still justifiable to give to a healthy 15-year-old. And so far, they've found that it is.
0: With uh, something like this, obviously, we've seen a lot of vaccine hesitancy. It seems like the big sell in getting your adolescent, this age group, 12 to 15 vaccinated is Don't have to worry about going back to school. It can be done nice and safely now. With this authorization, it expands the pool of eligible recipients to about 87% of the U.S. population, which is great. But adults have already been hesitant to get the vaccine themselves. What are they expecting when it comes to this age group?
2: I mean, certainly there's concern. Anytime you put something into a child, there's concern. I don't actually trust some of the polling data so far because it hasn't been available. So I think people have not kind of considered it as a, as a, as a real thing. So I, I think we'll see going forward now, now that it should be available as of, we hope, Thursday. And we'll see how parents react. It may be that they want to wait a little bit because they want to see how other kids do. But hopefully by the time school starts, enough parents will feel comfortable. The teachers will feel comfortable going back into school buildings as well.
0: And what about the youngest age groups, uh, people younger than 12 years old? I know there's uh, studies going on right now. Uh, when can we see data on that?
2: Exactly, and those those are lagging behind for a couple of reasons. One, because they were started later. They step down for children's vaccines. They start with adults and then older kids and then move down the age group. So they started those more recently. And also because those kids have smaller bodies, they may need a lower dose. And so it, it's a little trickier to figure out how much they should receive. So, you know, a six-month-old maybe that shouldn't get the same amount as an adult. So they're, they're testing all of that now. But it, we're expecting the 5 to 11-year-olds, which is the next group, will hear some data from Pfizer probably early September in that time frame. So not before the start of school, but maybe early right. in the school year.
0: Well, good news for now, at least, expanding that pool of vaccine eligible vaccine recipients. So hopefully, we can continue to put the pandemic behind us on that front. Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Finally, for this week, famed TV artist Bob Ross is one of history's most prolific painters, racking up almost 30,000 paintings in his lifetime. But you'd be hard-pressed to find one of his original works in the open market. First, Bob Ross Inc., which owns the majority of his works, has them locked away in a warehouse. But they also make more money selling paints and painting supplies using his name. Secondly, many of his paintings are already sitting in homes across the country. When sold, his paintings can sell for over $10,000. For more on why it's so hard to find an original Bob Ross painting, we'll speak to Zach Crockett, senior writer at The Hustle.
3: There's been an estimate that's thrown out by a lot of credible people in the Bob Ross space that he churned out about 30,000 paintings in his lifetime. Wow! Now, he painted about 1,100, 1,200 paintings for his TV show. And for each show, he'd do three versions. He'd mock one up before the show. He'd paint one during the show, and then he'd do one afterwards. But then outside of that, long before his TV career, he was selling paintings at flea markets in Alaska. And all through his career, even when he was famous, he'd do these events at malls and training sessions where he'd do these live paintings and either give them away or donate them.
0: So there's a lot of those Bob Ross paintings out there, but in the open market, they're really hard to come by. Let's start off with Bob Ross and and his life. Personally, I had no clue that he had joined the Air Force and that he was actually a drill sergeant, which totally doesn't match (laughs) his really calm demeanor on the show. I guess they used to call him Bust Them Up Bobby.
3: Yeah, I think a lot of people are surprised by that. So Bob was born in 1942 in Florida. He dropped out of school in the ninth grade and his dad was a carpenter. So he worked with his dad for a while. And then he ended up in the air force in Alaska and he worked his 20 for 20 years as a drill sergeant. And when he was out there in Alaska in these desolate kind of landscapes, he discovered painting and fell in love with it. So he retired, he moved to Florida in the eighties and he studied under this famous TV painter named Bill Alexander, who was kind of his contemporary this crazy guy on on public television. And he took one of the guy's classes and became something of an apprentice. And one of his students named Annette Kowalski was mesmerized by Bob Ross and she convinced him to kind of strike out on his own. So they pulled together their money and they launched this company called Bob Ross Inc. And they kind of set out to make Bob Ross a TV star. And eventually a PBS executive got wind of Bob Ross and gave him a shot and the joy of painting air between 1983 and 1994. It was a huge hit. It was on like 300 stations and it was broadcast to 80 million people a day.
0: Yeah. And it's still a huge hit on YouTube. Just kind of in preparation mm-hmm. for us talking today, I just clicked on some random videos. One had about 5 million. Another one had 35 million. I think it's like <laughs> over 450 million views total or something like that. I mean, it's just amazing yeah, kind yeah. of how long, all of these videos really live on, and and you mentioned Bob Ross Inc. So the kind of company that they started really that became the money maker. Not necessarily these paintings or anything like that, but all the stuff, the intellectual property of that, because they sell paints and paint brushes and all that, and that really was the business driver right there.
3: Yeah, it's funny. Even today, you go online, you can find. So much Bob Ross stuff, man. It's like paints, brushes, Bob Ross underwear, Bob Ross coffee mugs, energy drinks, watches, toasters. And for Bob Ross, Inc., the paintings were kind of always an afterthought. The main value add for them was capitalizing on his image and spreading his his kind of gospel of making painting accessible to everyone. It was a very profitable company. It was grossing around $15 million by 1991. But the paintings, they just went into storage, and they sat around for a long time in cardboard boxes, and they didn't really know exactly what to do with them. And even today, they have this small kind of office complex in Northern Virginia, and if you go in there, there's just a bunch of Bob Ross paintings sitting around, and for the most part, they're not very utilized.
0: They're probably worth millions, and uh, you know, if they ever want Mm -hmm. to sell them, they could, but that's not necessarily the plan right now. So they hold a lot of them, but what happened to all those other right? The, the thirty thousand total, you know, what happened to all those? Mm-hmm. And and I love the way you write it up in the story. And it's just so true. As he would give them away, they'd auction them off locally. A lot of these Bob Ross originals, right, are sitting in people's homes and people's storage. They may not know, but they're just kind of out there, and that's where they're at currently. But in the open market, to you know, as a, as a, to sell them on the Mm -hmm. art platform, you know, they're not really in wide circulation. So
3: about 1,165 Bob Ross originals are at Bob Ross Inc. And they're just kind of sitting there. On occasion, they'll loan them out to various exhibits around the country. There's a couple at the Smithsonian right now. They're not on view, but they're in the archive. There's an exhibit in Muncie, Indiana. There's one in Florida. But like you said, the shocking thing is that you know, outside of Bob Ross's TV work, he just was very generous during his lifetime. He had a lot of fans, and most of the people who bought his painting were just like working class Americans, you know, living in the middle of America. And they picked these up for 40 50 $60 and kind of just thought they were a nice, pretty painting to hang on their wall. They're hanging in bathrooms and living rooms and hallways. And until recently, I don't think many people knew what they had on their hands, but when they do pop up on the open market, it's not uncommon to see them fetch more than $10,000. There's currently one at an auction house online for $94,000. So it can be quite a uh, tasty investment for the people who got in early.
0: (laughs) You have a, a great story about a man named Larry Walton who bought a Bob Ross painting for 60 bucks. I think this was in Alaska. Tell us that story because he went through the process of actually turning it over to an art dealer. That art dealer ended up selling it for even more money. So tell us that story because that's just kind of a, an interesting ride for a Bob Ross painting and for somebody that might have one, something that you could probably do too.
3: A great story that illustrates the, the types of folks who own these paintings today is this guy, Larry Walton. He's 82 now and he lives in Minnesota. And back in 1980, he was working as a flight instructor in Alaska, and uh, he saw this guy who he described as a peculiar artist, and at an Anchorage fair, selling his paintings. And he bought this scene with like mountains and northern blue northern lights for $60. And it literally just it sat in his garage for years and years and years. And his son, who had seen Bob Ross's YouTube videos, saw the signature in the corner and thought it looked familiar. So they eventually realized it was a Bob Ross original. They reached out to this auction and art gallery named Modern Artifacts. They're a dealer based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And they're actually kind of the premier Bob Ross reseller. So they've put a lot of work into like SEO and newspaper advertisements to dig up these paintings. And they'll buy them for what I think is a pretty fair price. I think in, in this case, they gave Larry Walton $10,000 for his painting. The gallery owner took it and flipped it for 18500 to another Bob Ross buyer. But over the years, Modern Artifact has come across dozens of Bob Ross paintings and uh, made a, a pretty good business out of reselling them online to people who aren't able to find them anywhere else.
0: Right. I think you mentioned in the article that they sold at least 34 Bob Ross paintings over mm-hmm. the years. And obviously, these landscapes... They're very simple. They're easily identifiable. Obviously, there you can replicate them pretty easily. That was Bob Ross's style, but I mean, just kind of the persona that he's built up, the icon, I guess, the art icon that you you could call him over the years. You know, a cultural icon as well. They hold so much more significance, and I would love to have one in my living room and say, "Hey, that's a Bob Ross right there." <laughs> you know, it, it's so cool. And, yeah. But you spoke to some art appraisers. They said that maybe the true value of one of these is probably about $2,000 to $4,000. But considering all that stuff that we've been talking about, right, that's what bumps up that price to $10,000 to $18,000. So the one that they have, as that you said, for $94,000 at auction.
3: It's a supply and demand thing. Art appraisals are based on many factors. But Bob Ross paintings, I think of them kind of like diamonds. Like there's tons of them out there, but there's kind of this artificial scarcity created by people holding on to them for a long time and Bob Ross Inc. holding their trove as well. So this kind of shortage on the market causes the prices to just absolutely explode. And another appraiser told me they don't necessarily think of Bob Ross as strictly fine art. They're kind of entertainment memorabilia. So you're also kind of paying for the fact that Bob Ross is on television. He was a public persona. And I actually talked to one collector who owns Picasso's and other famous artworks and She actually told me she considered her Bob Ross to be kind of the crown jewel of her collection. She gets more comments from her dinner guests on the Bob Ross than she does on her other paintings. And for her, it was all just about the painting having a really good backstory. And I think there's just a a general fascination with Bob Ross. And he's kind of this permanent cultural icon an immortal force in our culture.
0: Zach Crockett, senior writer at The Hustle. Thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thanks, appreciate it
0: that's it for this weekend be sure to check out the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook leave us a comment give us a rating and tell us the stories that you're interested in follow the Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. this episode of the Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles and this was your Daily Dive weekend edition